Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana is an Olympic gold medalist in track and field and a newly published author. She is currently training to qualify for her third games in Tokyo this summer. Welcome to the podcast, Tiana. Thank you, Sasha, for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So am I. And it's rare to get to speak with an athlete that's had such a long, accomplished career. You've already achieved the pinnacle of your sport. That gives you this life perspective that I think is so fascinating and this chance to think about how you evolve as an athlete and what changes over time. Let's just start with this bird's eye perspective that you won your first world championship at 19 and now at 35, you're training for your third Olympic Games, hoping to defend your Olympic title in Tokyo. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've been able to navigate such a long career and keep your body and mind motivated and healthy? Oh, well, I didn't, I wasn't always successful at that. I will say that winning that first title at 19 was a little bit, it backfired on me. It it should have um, made me more hungry as an athlete. Instead, it made me content. And I thought, you know, there's nowhere else for me to go. There's nothing else for me to improve. I'm already this good. Look at me now. Very arrogant take on the whole thing. And honestly, pride does come before a fall because it's, for seven seasons after that, I was horrible, mediocre, couldn't even outjump the high school version of myself. And to get back to this place where I was making national teams and winning global medals, I really had to focus more on the process and not the outcome. So I had to really get focused on how do I become a better athlete? How do I get to my personal best? Because my personal best is the only shot I have at proving I am the best. It's not the other way around. You don't just go out trying to be the best without maximizing all the ways in which you can be your personal best. And that's the difference. And every year that means something different. The body changes, you change, the competition changes. So it's different all the time. And I think that's where the longevity comes from. And to paint a picture of how you found track and how you made your first Olympic team. I found the story really fascinating that your first Olympic team spot that you earned was somewhat of a byproduct of trying to earn or keep a scholarship. Can you set the stage and tell us that story? Well, what I was, I actually made my first Olympic team while trying to quit track altogether. (laughs) So it was like the byproduct of putting in the time and the effort to get good enough at track to keep getting invited to the meets in the European circuit because they're really high caliber meets. And because I was really focused on that and earning money to pay tuition for my molecular and microbiology degree so that I could like peace out and go to medical school and put track and field behind me, which had been largely disappointing for me at that point, all of that effort, all of that consistent, sustained discipline uh, led to me being able to make the team in an event I did not specialize in, the 100 meter dash in 2012. And it just, that was the biggest lesson. It's almost like, even if you don't have this amazing or profound why behind why you're doing it, just having one. And mine was get tuition covered so I can quit. (laughs) It doesn't matter what it is. It keeps you just focused enough to stay in the game and keep showing up. And I wasn't really attached to the outcome, and I think that's why it came that way. And you've also spoken about how you never loved running. Within track and field, you tried to pick the the events with the least amount of running time. Has that changed for you, or what exactly made you fall in love with your sport? Yeah, um, love is generous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's good. Clarify. <laughs> Okay. Um, still, I strong, strong dislike for jogging and running anything over like 200 meters. I love to sprint, love to do block starts. But the thing that keeps me coming back to track and field is the science of it, the puzzle of it. It almost has nothing to do so much with the the running and the jumping more than it's like, how do I figure out how to jump farther? Or how do I figure out how to perfect 
this acceleration pattern. So I really like the details of it all and figuring out how to make one change here to change the entire result. What have you figured out over your career? I'm sure that's changed from your time as a teenager to being 35. The body changes, the mind changes. And I love that you look at it like a science puzzle because it is the physics of the body, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit more on that. So I think ultimately that's what did change. The fact that as a younger athlete, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to be born with talent. I have to like be the best out here and who knows what can happen. As an older athlete, it's like, I just need to execute the physics <laughs> and what happens will happen. And so you kind of remove all the the variables that emotions and feelings and confidence and insecurity can cause on any given day, because I now know and have a ton of proof because of the body of work that I've done that, you know, F equals MA on any given day, whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood, or if my stomach hurts, or I have a cold, or, you know, I'm suffering from something. If I can just execute this one thing, it works out because science doesn't just, you know, pick their favorites on any given day. And so I think that's the difference. And it's kind of kept me a little more focused. And it's really, it's a relief to me that I don't have to feel awesome. I don't have to be the best on paper on that day or ranked number one in the world on that day to put forth a best performance to take my shot and maybe even win. Breaking the steps down technically, what does that look like? Are you analyzing videos of your jumps? What goes into tinkering with that formula? Oh, yeah, all of that. A lot of video, um, a lot of conversations with maybe our high-performance biomechanical analysis people who have amassed all the data to know what the best angles and shin angles, the optimum ones are, comparing myself to those models. And then the hardest part, but the most impactful part, is figuring out the language you need to use for yourself Because as athletes, we're talking to ourselves almost the entire time, right? Figuring out that language to make you do what you know you need to do. Because almost all of us on this level know exactly. Yeah, almost we almost all know exactly what we're supposed to do. It's a matter of if we do it, when we need to do it. And what is that self-talk that helps us do that? For you, what does that inner dialogue look like? How simplified is that I remember when I was an athlete and coming uh, from the Olympic Village to the arena and really trying to simplify and keep my mind on track and focus. It was as literal as just put on your pants, just put on Mm -hmm. your shoes, walk to the boards and keeping myself in this bubble. For you, there's so much happening so fast in milliseconds. I'm curious how you program and lay out the the series of events or messages that you're internally sharing. That's exactly right, Sasha. And I honestly, I call it mental hijacking because like, I know I'm crazy. I know that I get lost in my head sometimes. And so I make sure like on the day of the meet, it's like breakfast is at seven. And then we're going to watch this movie from nine to 11. We're going to get in the shower at this time. You know, all of these things are spelled out. I don't have to think or be in my head about any of those things. When I get to, let's use a long jump, for example, it becomes really simple. It's almost like, sometimes I hesitate to share it because people expect like, oh, the Olympic champion has this like high level dialogue going on. Like, no, I'm literally saying left foot, right foot, (laughs) left foot, right foot, time to jump, right knee, left knee. You know, all of these little things to kind of just keep myself in my lane. Very simple in the moment. It's training sessions where you can like be a nerd about it and and dive into the physics equations of it all. But in a competition, it's like, only say what you need, only do what you need in those moments. And to broaden out from the inner dialogue to mental training, mental health, mental preparation, you've spoken about quite a few things, I think, in this space. And I think some of it harkens back to mandatory psychology sessions at the University of Tennessee as maybe the beginning of an introduction to the importance of 
how you're training and preparing your mind. I can tell that you've done so much work in this space, and I also loved a quote of yours that a matter it was a matter of survival to make your mind an ally. I would love to pinpoint exactly when that was during your career and perhaps the circumstances that prompted that. So yeah, I owe Dr. Joe Whitney a lot from the University of Tennessee. We had those mandatory um, team psychology sessions, but I also went in by myself and we visualized. We visualized so much and so effectively that when I did win the world championship title in 2005, I failed to react appropriately because I had already done it in my head so many times. Like I forgot to be like, Oh, I won. Like it, it was such a delayed thing because it was like, yeah, this is this is what we worked on. Like been there, <laughs> done that kind of thing. And I remember my coach says, aren't you excited? Oh, you must be in shock. And it was actually the opposite. I played it off well and I eventually got around to celebrating. But that visualization that was so powerful, I had been there already. So I knew that was something I needed to keep uh, in my practice. And it, it introduced me to the power of the mind. Um, years later, when I was navigating a very uh, toxic and abusive marriage, I understood the importance of having my mind become an ally because it was very strong. But the mind is like is like an entity with superpowers. You can either use it to save the world or you can use it to destroy the world, but the power is there, right? So you have to figure out which direction you're going to turn the attention of the mind because it's going to use its power. The question is, Is it going to be used for or against you? And so really, it's in all of our best interests for survival to turn the mind into somebody that's like the MVP on our team rather than let it just run amok and wreak all this havoc because it's powerful. And whether you use it or not, it's still powerful. And so it's just basically like, I need to use this for good because right now it's killing me. Like all of this strength is just, preying on my insecurities and inner demons when honestly I could just flip it and use it to build me up and like get better and inch me closer to the life that I want. And did you find success in that through certain books that you read? Was it through a meditation practice? Because I find that, again, a strong mind is very, very important, but sometimes you don't realize you're using that strength against yourself in the sense that you're pushing yourself to keep training And now all of a sudden you have an injury, a much worse injury than if you'd listened to your doctors or your coaches and taken taken a little bit of time off. But in your head, you're like, no, I'm being strong. I'm pushing through the pain. I need to be prepared. And so any way that you can make it more granular for listeners, for athletes to understand what that conversation looks like and perhaps something that you've, you've read along the way or an experience you've had that allowed you to say, okay, you know, I used to tell myself X, Y, Z. And now before I train, I meditate or I do this. This has been transformative for my training. Yeah. So I'm a huge reader and you can always find me in like the personal development section of a bookstore. It's just like, I love that. I love that lane. So I read a lot and I've read a lot of those books. Um, Two of the most powerful ones for me, I think, were The Power of Positive Thinking, which as you read it, feels very obvious and repetitive, but sometimes you just need to get it in and hear it over and over and over. And the classic As a Man Thinketh by James Allen, just straight up just think. <laughs> it's almost like um, you could, no, but even if you don't quite believe it yet, just think the thought anyway, and you'll catch up to it. And I use that that thinking to... Uh, in the 100 meter final in 2012, my coach told me at the time that I would need to run 10.8 to get a medal. And I had never run 10.8 before. And so it's kind of a, a weird feeling to know that you have to run a time you've never run before to get the one thing that you you came to do. And I remember thinking, because I was stuck at 10.9, uh, like, how do I do this? And so I listened to that audiobook over and over and over. It's a very short listen. and. All day, I just said, I can run 10-8. I can run 10-8. All day long, like just eating eating lunch. I can run 10-8 every bite, you know, just thinking this thought. Not sure, um, not sure about whether it would happen or not, but just inundating myself with this one thought. Getting to the final, and I run 
it happened. And I remember like, I got fourth. So for a second, I was like, oh my gosh, it didn't work. But then I saw the time and I was like, oh my God, it absolutely works. I just wasn't specific enough. (laughs) So yeah, that's like one thing you can do. Those two books are a great place to start. Another one I, I love is The Alchemist. It's just a story that I think every athlete can relate to. It's like you've got your beginner's luck and you're like, I'm gonna win forever. And then something crazy happens. You come back and then something else happens. And that just reminds me that it's a universal story. It's a universal existence. Not all of us are going to be on Team USA. Not all of us are going to be on the podium. But absolutely every single one of us knows what it's like to taste victory and then get knocked on our butts and then have to make a comeback. And so that's really good. And then my yoga practice and my meditation practice, it's really important to draw this inspiration from multiple sources because We are whole people, very complex with more than one dimension. And so I try to attack it from all sides. There are so many threads that you sprinkled in that answer that I want (laughs) to follow on. First of all, let me just remember this for myself, but your experience of your first Olympics, and it sounds like that's really when you started to put in some of these mental training habits. Can you talk about what that experience was like? And I really want to contrast that for our listeners because you went to a second very successful games and now you're training for a third and this is you know a rarity for athletes to be able to keep your body in that kind of shape to be competitive injury free for that long let's perhaps start just what that moment was like making your first olympic games as you said you broke your own personal record with your new mental training and was that the point in your career when meditation and these certain positive thinking books came into your practice? It wasn't, honestly. I would say that came closer to the second Olympic Games. The first one, honestly, it was like I was just doing what I was told. I was trusting. I trusted other people more than I trusted myself. So I trusted my coach's expertise and I trusted that he knew what he was doing. And so honestly, when I was on the line, I kind of experienced imposter syndrome because I wasn't, I I didn't know for sure that I belonged there. I just knew that I had somehow gotten there. (laughs) And it was like, I was, it was very much out of, I wasn't comfortable. I was out of my comfort zone because I wasn't aiming for that, if that makes sense. And and that is greatly contrasted with 2016 when my goal was like, no, I am going to defend this for my one title. I'm going to win this long jump title. Very different. Um, My attitude in 2012 was like, "Um, let's just see what happens. Hope I run (laughs) (laughs) 10-8. And, you know, I just made the thing I did well in 2012 was that I did not stand in my own way. That's the only thing that I did well. I didn't let my imposter syndrome or my insecurities or self-doubt stop me from executing the best that I could on that day. 2016 was like, no, this is the plan. This is how I execute. This is what I'm going to work on. This is what I need to do. And I was very much in my alter ego, the executioner. Like There was no wavering from the plan that I set for myself. And I think I was able to do that because of the mental work that I was putting in. I had already begun to start to meditate. I was already using yoga um, to just kind of generate more body awareness. And I think yoga is one of the best mental conditioning practices an athlete can do because it links the body to the mind, which is what we want in our competitions. Um, So that was already coming together. I'm way more powerful at that now than I was then. But 2016 was kind of really where it showed up for the first time in my competition. Having accomplished so much in your first two games, what made you still have the drive, the hunger to put in another four? And now, as it turns out, five years to train for a third game, which is an all-consuming life endeavor. Mm -hmm. To be completely honest, it's not about the games. I think if it were about the games, I my motivation would be lower because this is a, hate to sound like this, but it's a been there, done that situation at this point, right? It's like, I've already got the gold medals and a world record at the Olympic Games. So it's not really about the games itself, but it's about 
the pursuit of personal mastery. It's one of those things where I know that I am the Olympic champion in the long jump and I did not execute well. <laughs> but I look at that video and I'm like, that was a mess, right? And so what's really driving me is like, can I be a better technician? Can I be better? And ultimately, maybe that puts me on the team again. And maybe that help, that allows me the opportunity to defend my title. But those aren't the things that motivate me. It's like, can I've already done that. So can I be an even better jumper? I honestly would be more satisfied, you know, losing as a better jumper than I was in 2016 than winning again, like getting away with the same mistakes that I, I got away with in 2016. Well, that speaks to your wisdom. I don't think that's something an 18-year-old would say. Yeah, I wouldn't have said it back then either. Not at all. <laughs> that's incredible to see where you've shifted mentally and what this part of your career is about. And as you've mentioned, there was a six or seven-year stretch, which was really tough. I'd love to dive into what enabled you to stick through that. And also, I know you think it's very important, you know, as as many of us do, to not only struggle, but to find some meaning, some point in the suffering mm. and be able to share those lessons more broadly, which I think you do in ways through your your social media, through your blog, putting a voice, putting a lesson, some kind of understanding to struggles in life, whether they come from the athletic part of your life, the personal part of your life. Not that many people go through a seven-year stretch and come out of it in the way that you have. And I think that would be really interesting for people to understand your mindset. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't quit. <laughs> um, it would have been the much easier decision to make, I think, to just to just quit. But I think I think there was something track and field keeps me up at night. Like not being able to figure out, you know, why I'm not performing well or better keeps me up at night. And so I think it was just a matter of unfinished business that I was just chasing, right? Like there's something deep in here that I have not yet seen and I'm not willing to, you know, let it go yet. And again, it was real easy for me as a former world champion to keep getting invited to me is keep making just enough money to cover rent and tuition. So there was like a very like real world reason why I stayed in the game. But uh, my mindset, honestly, was like, like I told you earlier in this conversation, the why was like, okay, I think, you know, it's over for me. But as long as they keep inviting me to meets, as long as I'm still able to pay for groceries and school, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to keep going. And then I was doing uh, track clinics, which I really enjoyed sharing with other people and sharing with young athletes. And so I was still getting something from the sport. It was still nourishing me in a way. And so that kind of kept me going for seven seasons. And I had jobs. I had at one point three part-time jobs at the same time trying to train and navigate all of this. Um, so it definitely wasn't easy. And mentally, it wore me down to like keep being announced at track meets as a world champion, a two-time world champion at that time. And then get out there and like jump 20 feet when I had been jumping closer to 23. Uh, so that was rough. And I think I began to really, really pay attention to who I was outside of track and field because I was losing my identity as a track athlete. And I thought that that was killing me. The fact that I could no longer say like, I'm an elite athlete. And so I had to, that began my journey of who is Tiana outside of track? And that kept me going too. I'm curious to follow up on that. I identity is such a big theme for me and for the guests on this podcast because I think as athletes, we tend to have so much of ourselves wrapped up in the sport that we dedicate our lives to, especially you know if you've started from the age of four or five and done it all day, every day, and been homeschooled. And so what did you find when you figured out who else you were outside of that track athlete? And did you find that through your writing? Or what were the sources uh, where you were able to cobble together this picture of a more whole human? Yeah, I struggled to answer the question during that time. I, but the pursuit of answering the question kept me. Uh, this is often a really hard question to answer, I think. Um, 
But I was reading this book called The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. And there was an exercise in there called um, 30s. And you make three lists. So 30 things you want to do, 30 things you want to be, and 30 things you want to have, right? They seem like they're three very different lists. But at the end of the exercise, you go back through and you see that on each list, you probably wrote the same thing, worded in a different way. And it's kind of like a way to reveal who you are and what you want. And you take those common themes from across those lists and kind of craft a mission statement for yourself. So even if you don't actually know the answer, you can reveal the answer by kind of approaching it from different angles. And I began to do that. And even though my mission statement often changed from year to year, it the pursuit of trying to just always looking inside and saying, hey, who are you? Who are you? Means that I am aware that I'm not just track and field. And that separation was enough to keep me in the sport. That was enough. Just having that little separation helped me understand this is what I do. It's not who I am. I may not know who I am at the moment, but I do know that track and field is what I do. It's not who I am. And that's basically where I have to start and where I tell everybody to start because it's an overwhelming question to answer. And how old were you at that time when you were doing these exercises? Hmm. So horrible at mental math, but it was around 2009. So how long ago was that? <laughs> 11, 11 years ago yeah. or so. Okay. All right. There we go. Interesting. So I'm 35 it's... now. So 35 minus 11. <laughs> there we go. We think it's 24. <laughs> we'll there we go. Fact check that. <laughs> I think that's incredible to do while you're still competing and still processing so much because, again, you're busy with school, coming of age, focus on your sport, and to to make time to figure out who else you are in the midst of that, I find incredibly commendable. And it sparks a thought in my mind that so much of what we're doing as athletes and the drive comes from this place of vulnerability and trying to prove ourselves prove ourselves to others, to the audience, to family members, coaches, to the media. And sometimes we're trying to prove what we can do to ourselves, to that doubt in our heads, the years and hours and hours of training to say that I'm enough. And I'm curious how that experience has been for you. And I know you've spoken about these moments when you've been on the podium and you haven't really felt what you thought you might feel that it perhaps came from just the burden of expectation and the weight of pressure and and how that processed and manifested and kind of, I guess, came to some sense of closure for you when you were on the podium and you could finally close the book on that event on that day. Yeah. um, It's a horrible thing to admit because kids ask me that all the time. Like, what was it like getting your medal? And I'll be honest, I lie to them most of the time and tell them, some tell them like, you know, you're proud of yourself and all these things, because, you know, there's, there's no point in discouraging them from that, that dream and the allure of the podium. Right. But what I honestly feel felt was relief. It was like, Oh, thank God. Thank God. All that worked out. (laughs) It wasn't really a moment of celebration. Like, Oh my gosh, look what I accomplished. It was like, Oh my goodness. I don't know what I would have done if this was not the result. <laughs> and that's kind of sad in hindsight that that's, that's the way that I've, I've felt when I received my medals, but that is what it, that is largely what it was. A little bit of validation, mostly relief. I think that if you haven't lived through it, if you haven't started from a young age, it's hard to fathom what the pressure is like in this singular moment that you project out in time and it's not a class you can retake if you fail. And it does really seem like the end-all be-all, especially the intervals. A world championship is every year and an Olympic Games every four years and now it's, it's five with COVID. And I can completely understand that, the emotions that are tied to that sense of relief. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Rewinding a little bit, the relief comes in large part because of all the pressure and buildup and the anxiety of wanting to do everything right. And as you said, it's deconstructing the way that you run, the way that you jump, the way that you eat, sleep. 
how do you know that you're optimizing, you're doing everything right until four years from now and if you get the the performance that you're hoping for. And it's always a little bit fuzzy because your best is the ultimate goal, right? And you hope it mm-hmm. turns into a gold medal, but it's hard to know what your best is unless you keep going and you keep pushing that thread. But this reminds me of, a, I guess, a conversation I heard you have on another podcast saying that anxiety was a lot of the fuel you use to drive the early part of your career and that you no longer use that, that it it served you once, you said thank you, and it, it doesn't serve you as fuel anymore. I'm curious when you let that go and, and what serves as the fuel today. Yeah, that was the Finding Mastery podcast. And I felt like I was in a therapy session when I was there because I didn't realize that that's what I was doing until that moment. So that was like a real-time realization for me. But yeah, it was, I think I finally let it go when I lost my sponsor. I mean, I I didn't realize how um, burdened having the contract with like, you must be ranked top five, you must do this, or, you know, these horrible things happen to your support. I didn't realize how much of that I was carrying into the meat, into the competition. And you think about it, like, that's a horrible way to go into a competition thinking, okay, if I don't place top three. I lose 50% of my salary. Like you don't lose 50% of your expenses. So you have to figure out how to cover that gap. But thinking about that at the starting line of the Olympic Games, that's not conducive to high performance. But that anxiety I was able to, you know, use to like spur me on. But when I lost that, of course, losing your sponsor comes with a whole different host of like, um, anxieties and things you need to deal with. But what I no longer had to deal with was going to training every day thinking like, if I don't do this well, then how do I stack up? You know, if I don't, if if I don't place top three at this meet, what are they going to say about me? Are they going to like take my money from me? All of that was gone. Cause it was just like, there is no money. There's no money to make. There's no money to lose. I was free. And so I found that, um, that actually made it a lot better for me to to not have that hanging over my head. And that's how I know that the the sport world that we're in just isn't conducive to mental health. Uh, we're results oriented. We're like, prove yourself, compare yourself to others or else. And it's just like, a psychologist would tell you to do the exact opposite of those things for great mental health, right? And so I think not being burdened by um, a performance contract in that way has really helped me. It's freed me to be uh, more healthy and be able to enjoy the process more. And has that anxiety, I guess it's been replaced with freedom. And in that freedom, is it, you know, you have the gold medals, you have the the record. Is it, again, just like the pursuit of personal mastery that has replaced the, the anxiety? It's like this curiosity, this tinkering with your body of like, what what mm-hmm. am I capable of? Is that this curiosity that's replaced the anxious component of drive? That's the, cur- yeah, absolutely. It's the curiosity, like, what can I do? What else can I do? What am I capable of? But I will say, none of this works if you don't know who you are outside of the sport, right? Because when I, when I, it's not the first time that I've like been dropped, you know, from a contract, right? It's not the first time it's happened. But before when it's happened, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm worthless. Because they don't see my worth, I'm suddenly worthless. I internalized it differently, right? But because I've done so much of this inner work, like, yeah, no, that's not what that means at all. That's a business decision. It has nothing to do. And physics doesn't care whether you're a sponsored athlete or not. It doesn't affect your ability to get out there and perform in any given moment. And that's oversimplified, of course, because if you have more resources, it's a little bit easier for you to you know, get there. But at the end of the day, if you are on that line at the Olympic Games or at the Olympic trials, you have an equal shot as a person with resources because you made it there. You are right there on that line. Everybody starts at zero on that day, right? So all that's out the window. I think because I knew who I was and I take care of every other aspect of me, I didn't have that financial insecurity burden. I can teach yoga. I can write. I can do all of these other things. And so I gave myself permission to support myself in other ways. 
that way I was actually truly free on the track. And so the curiosity is what spurs me on there. And do you find that writing has been an outlet for you in ways to process? And I'm curious if you ascribe this to your family or upbringing, your parents, but I think both of your parents were working in the field of athletics, focused on the body. I think your mom was a, a choreographer in dance and your father was um, a was he yeah. a boxer in the martial arts. And so mm-hmm. there's this this focus and this environment of honing the body and developing the body, but you seem to have such a developed mind, this curiosity in writing, and you said you wanted to be a doctor, and this this focus on a scholarship. And so I think it served you incredibly well, and I'm curious where that was instilled and how you've developed that. Yeah, so both my, my mother did that during her, during college, but she is she's worked in the financial industry forever. So that's what she actually does. And my dad, um, martial artist, boxer, but he was very much focused on the, what made him a great fighter was his ability to meditate and drop into the space that he needed to be in to execute the, you know, the combinations and the katas that he was doing. Um, That's kind of where that came from. We didn't practice meditation as kids, but we knew it existed and we knew its power. Um, I have always been a writer. I was writing before I became an athlete. And I think it's largely because I don't like, I don't like to talk. I mean, it's hard to believe now, but I I prefer not to. I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. And I would, whenever there was a problem at home, I would write letters to my parents. Like, I was upset by you when you made me go wash the dishes when I was watching Arthur. And I would fold up the letter and slide it under the bedroom door and then run to my room and kind of wait because I was uncomfortable with having that conversation. So writing was the only way that I could assert myself in a way that was comfortable for me. And I have maintained that throughout my entire life. So it's like if something something happens that I feel strongly about, I blog about it. And so it's it's a self-expression, but was developed far before my athletic ability was. That really resonates with me. I haven't written very much, but the times that I have written to try to sort out the Olympic experience, sort out identity, sort out what comes next, I find there's nothing like writing it down to clarify that jumble in your head. And this, I don't know, it, it, and then it, if you publish it and other people read it and there's the conversation around it, a sense of connection, mm-hmm. Being a solo athlete, which, of course, you have both that experience and the experience of being a team athlete, um, I I just found this sense of community and that my voices, my voice, my one voice, my experiences (laughs) mattered and helped someone else along this path in navigating either their career, their sense of purpose, their next step. So I love that, that you're a writer and you've used it as fuel not only in your sport and identity, but I know that you're a very vocal member of the Race and Social Justice Council with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And when did advocacy and activism become a big part of how you use your voice? I think that the day I found the courage to leave my marriage was the day that I became an advocate and activist, but I had to be that for myself first. And that's where, that's where it started. Like the day I realized that I deserved better and, you know, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was the day that I also realized that I would use my voice and platform to make sure everyone else had it as well. And so I would say that I would I would I would call myself a reluctant activist because I'm definitely not one to like slap that label on myself and like go out and with poster boards and stuff. But it's like, yeah, if if I need to talk about it, I'm no longer afraid to say the hard things because I've already lived through probably the hardest things and been through the hardest things. So it's like, yeah, I got it. I'll take that on. No problem. I'll do that for someone else who, you know, might not be you know, brave enough yet. And that's why I think it's important to share our stories. We got to give the, make the pain have meaning, but also kind of give somebody else a little bit of a boost. You know, like if she can do that, maybe I can try this. 
It's very well said. I want to take that and move on to perhaps a moment in your life that's had a huge impact on you. Perhaps it's a moment that shaped the trajectory of your life, your career, your outlook. I think everyone has these. They're oftentimes these incredible moments of failure where you really have to look at yourself and figure out what you're doing and why you're doing it. Or sometimes it could be a book or a person. And I'm curious if you've had that in your incredible career thus far. If I've had a singular moment? Yeah, I think a shaping moment, a defining moment. It could be anything from being paralyzed by nerves in a, in a track meet to a, a difficult conversation being dropped by a sponsor, but just something that you're like, aha, this is not the course of my life and I'm using this. Like I, I needed this in a way to figure out where I'm going from here. I have one. I have, yeah, I have one. Okay, this is from high school. Um, I My sophomore year of high school, I made it to state for the second time, having made it my freshman year as well. But this time, I won the long jump. And the long jump was on the day before the actual full program of the state meet was. So it was like one of those like evening sessions, not much going on. Nobody was in the stadium, really, except for family and friends. I won the long jump that night. It was my first state title. I was like, I could get used to this. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Um, but went to bed that night and was like, holy crap, I have three events tomorrow. Um, none of them I'm going to win because I was like a second slower than the number one seed in the state. Our relays were competitive, but we were not, you know, not the best at all. And I made the decision to not even try. I, I was in the 100, the 200, and the 4 by one And I made the decision to not try because I was going to lose anyway. In my little brain, I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to just enjoy this one state title that I have and just get through tomorrow. I mean, because I can't win. So I got through the 100, the 200. I made the podium still. Our relay, you know, we did well. At the end of the day, I thought I would be satisfied and I couldn't barely look myself in the mirror. I was so disgusted with myself for my lack of effort, my unwillingness to take a dang shot at it, even though the odds seemed, you know, so far out there. I was disturbed by my unwillingness to even try. And that was the last time that I ever approached a competition refusing to just shoot my shot. That was the last time. Like, so it does not matter. Like even now, like I can't run 10-7 right now, but I lined up with um, Shakari last Sunday. Like I'm here too. I'm going to take my shot, you know, instead of just jogging it through the finish line like I did in high school. That moment changed me forever. It turned me into an athlete that believed that in any given moment on any given day, I could win as long as I showed up and gave my effort. That's an important turning point to have. I just have a few more questions for you. I think another one just showing your strength of character is all athletes going into the summer games have had to deal with the monkey wrench of COVID and what that has meant for health, for family, for training, for postponing the games by a year. But on top of that, you've also had to deal with personal health issues that significantly sidelined your training. And can you talk a little bit um, if you're comfortable with the adversity you've had to overcome and what it's been like to kind of have to put your health first and stop training and it's such a pivotal time in your career. Yeah, it's been so much. So I was like, you know, after after like the divorce and all that stuff, I was like looking forward to like running through fields of green and like <laughs> like everything is great. And then, you know, I found that I have nine stress fractures in my jump leg and then six in the other leg. And it was just like, okay, now I have to kind of rest to let those heal. And then I come back and I sprained an ankle that never healed. And we learned that it didn't heal because I was severely anemic and was losing blood because of an irregular period, which we then learned was irregular because I had a tumor in my uterus that was hemorrhaging. Um, and so then I had emergency surgery. And because of um, you're familiar with like WADA and USADA and the therapeutic use exemption, I was really resistant to getting a blood transfusion. I just didn't want to have anything to do with having to do that paperwork or 
And so I refused the blood transfusion, but my body did not heal and was not creating the blood. And so I was trying to function as an elite athlete with low to no iron and two pints of blood less than the average human. Finally, the doctors were like, you're being stupid. You could die, get the blood transfusion. So I applied for the TUE and I got the blood transfusion. It was only then that I was able to start healing and get back on the track. The whole time, the only reason that I didn't just, you know, throw in the towel and say, I think, I think I've gotten enough signs that it's time to retire at this point was because I believe that on any given day, the only thing you can do is train the body you have on the day that you have it, period. And so it's like, today I can only run one rep of this workout. Sure, this time last year, I could do this five times, no problem, but this is what I have today. And guess what? That's all I can do and mission accomplished. Because you can only train the body you have, not the body you wish you have, right? That's the point of this whole thing. And I figured, like, I'll find out if that training was enough at some point down the road. But what does that matter today? This is what I can do today. This is all I have for today. And so every day it was like that. It was answering the question, what can I do today? And that's how I got through shelter in place. Um, That's why I created the training program for my followers called Homework. It's like, this is what we have. We have a staircase. We can do stair hops. (laughs) Like, this is what we have today. This is what we can work with. If we can't get in the gym, if we can't burn calories, guess what? We can eat better. We can tweak the diet to to make up for it over here. Like, train the body you have with what you have on that day, every single day. And you can't ask for anything more of yourself. You just can't. That's certainly an answer that comes from an athlete with experience that's gone from following a coach blindly to knowing yourself, knowing your body, and knowing what it means to be an an elite athlete. So I really respect that answer because oftentimes we compare our body today to the body we had five years ago or to someone else's body. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. can feel guilty or lazy if you're not doing the reps, but that is not always available to us in the body that we have today. So I have just two more questions for you. And I know that you have a book coming out called Survive in Advance. And this makes perfect sense that you're a writer, you want to make meaning of the struggle. And so why did you decide to write it? And and what's it really about? So I decided to write it because our stories aren't often told as athletes were presented as one dimensional, like this is the track athlete, and this is her success. I mean, like the Wikipedia page has your medal count right there. (laughs) So it's like, but I want context. And I think it's really important that people see us in context. Like, I want you to know who it is that is lining up and what it took to get there. That's, That's what's inspiring, I believe, to most people, knowing what it takes for someone to get to that point, to have that performance. For me, it's not enough to just be like, wow, you ran fast and you won. Like, what did it take for that to happen? So that was part of my motivation for writing it. The other part was I needed to own my story. I needed to own it and I needed to be the one to tell it. Because if you don't tell your story, two things can happen. One, it never gets told. And that's just sad to me because we all have stories worth telling and worth hearing. Or two, someone else tells it. And it's going to be wrong because it's incomplete because you didn't tell it. And so this was my way to own my narrative, all the painful, all the funny, all the triumphant and tragic parts of it. And and basically say, this is my life and I have nine medals. And so here is that story in all of its ridiculous context. <laughs> and it's like, and it's not preachy and it's not like, here's how you win a gold medal. It's It's not, here's how you become Olympian. It's basically, here's how you survive in advance. You put one foot in front of the other, you get to tomorrow, you give yourself a fighting chance, you keep moving, crawling, whatever it is to get to where you're trying to go. And you can do it because as you read the pages of the memoir, I think a lot of the reactions so far from people who have read it have been like, how in the world did you do it? And I think, 
people who close a book will look at their own lives like, you know what, I can do some hard stuff too. I've been 100% successful at surviving my life so far. I can go, I can, I can get farther. I can get to tomorrow. I can do this thing. I'm excited to check it out. I, I think the story is so much more interesting than the medal count or the bio. That is what it's about. So I'm glad that you wrote that. And the final question that I ask all my guests is their Olympic or Paralympic moment in life. It's something akin to standing on top of that podium, whether, you know, that moment of relief, this flashback of your career and what it, all the events that brought you to that moment, something like that in life. And other guests have thought it was a moment where they perhaps met their significant other or they began speaking out and using their voice as an activist, something that was just really important and some kind of discovery or meaningful time in their life that equates to what we feel when we've put a whole career, a whole lifetime into an Olympic pursuit? Hmm. I I don't know that I've felt that yet. Because I'm right now, what I'm, what I'm feeling is like, you know how like the water recedes from the shore before a big wave comes? I feel like that's what's happening. It's like, I know that something amazing is coming, but right now it's kind of just like (laughs) gathering (laughs) the energy. Yes. Gathering. It's building, it's building, it's building. And then like, that's kind of how I feel every day, like just building, building, building. But I have not yet like crashed against the rocks. And I think this is an exciting place for me because I have no idea what's going on. I'm just kind of riding it out. But yeah, I would say it's still, it's still to come. That would be my answer for that. I like that. Well, you have plenty of time, and I like the analogy of the the water of the ocean receding and gathering that force. And with all that, all that you've done, and all the ways you've applied yourself, and done these mental exercises and this self work, I'm sure it'll be a big wave that comes crashing down on <laughs> on whatever it is. Thank you so much for taking the time today for sharing your answers. Again, it's such a privilege to speak with an athlete who has competed for so long, who has struggled through difficult moments and found the bigger picture, the bigger perspective of what it's for and used your voice to write about it and share. So I think this is a really special episode and thank you. Thank you so much, Sasha. You asked amazing questions. I enjoy taking those deep dives. Oh, well, thank you. Well, best of luck heading into Tokyo, and um, we'll, we'll all be rooting for you along the way. Thank you. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.